Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. This week on the show, and we are back in the studio for the show this week, or back in the offices after a week or so on the road, we have two guests. First up, an interview with new Florida coach Billy Napier. The former Louisiana coach and Alabama assistant is assembling an army of staffers to turn the Gators around. How much of the blueprint that was so successful at ULL can he transport to Gainesville? How active does he plan to be in the transfer portal to patch holes in the roster in this transition year? And can you actually have a transition year in the SEC? Then Stephen Godfrey joins the show. Stephen is a national college football reporter and co-host of the Split Zone Duo podcast. Stephen and I talk about the state of Florida's big three and if it is possible for Florida, Florida State, and Miami to all still be excellent at the same time anymore. We'll get into what is the ceiling for the Sun Belt and why has West Virginia failed to launch under Neil Brown. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us at appodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's excellent NFL podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps more college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you would like to email the show, send questions and or comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag, the digits 25, at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is the new coach of the Florida Gators, Billy Napier. Coach, man, thanks so much for taking a little time today. Um, I know it's a, it, it's probably just been a whirlwind since you got to Gainesville. Um, how you doing? How's the start of spring practice going? You're actually about halfway through, right? You're toward the back end here. Ralph, uh, thanks for the opportunity, man. I certainly appreciate uh, you covering the Florida Gators and all the things that you've done for myself and our, our teams in the past. Um, we're, we're, we're off and running, right? We're, I think we're approaching 120 days or something like that. So, um, no, it's been great. We, we are very fortunate that our administration here has invested in infrastructure. You know, we, we've been able to go put an absolute all-star team of people together and I've been very impressed. You know, I think when you get put in these leadership positions, you find out pretty quickly that you got to surround yourself with really good people, right? So we've done that, and uh, you know, we've given them opportunity. We're empowering them, and uh, they've you know done even better than I can expect. So um, so far, so good. We've we've got a good thing going here. I want to let me jump off on that question on that right there. He opened the door to the idea of the staff. Uh, some of it has made some, uh, you know, small headlines because of some of the titles you have hired a lot of different people. Um, that is, I, you know, it's not necessarily unique. That is sort of the model. If you look at the big programs, they have a very large staff. Um, I, I guess the, what I would ask you is um, what are your goals to hiring that many people? Is there ever too many? Uh, and why some of the interesting titles? Yeah, no, I think um, I really believe in the infrastructure approach. You know, I think the well-defined roles, the job descriptions, um, not all, you know, I mean, obviously in their specific area, but, you know, I think that it's what's required these days. You know, you got, um, you know, close to 130 players on your current team. Uh, and then you're always in the process of evaluating hundreds, if not thousands of players throughout the country uh, from an evaluation and recruitment standpoint. So I think you got to see it kind of twofold, right? It's evaluation and recruitment. That's a separate entity, you know, and then once they arrive, it's all about development and motivation, right? And then creating an experience for the player where you truly make an impact on the, on the person, student and player. Right. So, you know, the way I always, uh, 
you know, the way we try to talk about it is the evaluation and recruitment part of what we do is a separate entity. And then we've got people that work hard on the development, the motivation, and certainly the impact part. Um, and I, I think that uh, college football is extremely competitive dynamic these days. We're talking, um, you know, hundreds of people that contribute. I would say it's about 250 people total uh, when you really start thinking about players and students all the way down to the student level, maybe close to 300, truth be known, when you get into the training room, equipment, video. Uh, so, you know, we want to create a team. Um, and certainly that's not just the players, but that's also the, the entire organization as a whole. So you had a, a really successful time at Louisiana. Um knocked off was it three, four straight double digit win seasons in the end there. Um, I, I guess the one thing I'd ask is you, you're moving up to a place like Florida. Clearly you have a model, you have a blue, a blueprint for success, but when you start incorporating that into a place like Florida, which SEC, different resources, different level of competition, certainly no, no, no offense to the Sun Belt, which is a real good league. When you start sorting through your blueprint and you start saying, okay, this works, I know I can bring this with me, but maybe there's some other things that either are going to need to change or I'm going to need to learn. Yeah, no, that's a great question, Ralph. And that's one that I ask myself a lot, you know, and I think, um, you know, the big thing is I think that, you know, the, we put that place together. Uh, with the intentions, we always had the conversation and would say to ourselves, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's take an approach where we could take our systematic approach in each area of the organization and move up to that next level. When we do get that opportunity, if that opportunity were ever to present itself, that it would apply to this level, right? So, um, you know, we, we had a number of people working there, volunteers, students, 20-year-olds. I mean, we had a really good workflow. Um, you know, we didn't necessarily have the experience or the expertise in some of those people, but we tried to operate the same way so that we could move forward at the next stop. We break our football year up into eight phases. We break our recruiting year up into six stages. Uh, we very, you know, um, systematic in our approach, right? I mean, I think we're developing protocol. We're developing uh, goals and objectives for each time of the year. Uh, we've seen it at that level, if that makes sense. You know, it wasn't like prior to Louisiana. We had no experience at the Power 5 level. We had a number of people on our staff who had seen what it looks like. Uh, we're always doing professional development throughout the offseason, studying best practices in each area of the organization, and not just the football component or the recruiting component. I think that the one thing I would say that we learned at Louisiana that maybe we made better was the evaluation part of our process, right? Because there you had to evaluate. I mean, heck, I used to watch 800 players a year just to get to, you know, 25 or so. Um, so, uh, and then I think once the player arrived, uh, we had to teach football at a completely different level. You know, our development process, I really feel has improved uh, because of the, the type of athlete that we were getting. We, we didn't necessarily get the finished product. You know, I think at this level, you know, you get a little bit more developed, a player that's had more exposure, a little bit more skilled player a little bit more knowledgeable player. So I think we improved our evaluation process. I think we really um, got more in-depth and specific about how we teach football and how we develop players. So I'm excited about applying some of those things that we learned from an evaluation and development standpoint. Now, recruiting is different, right? I mean, there's a the, the pace of the job and the timeline of the job is different, right? So I think that's probably the biggest thing is your everything happens a little bit earlier, um, which is okay. Um, I think you just got to allocate your time accordingly, right? So we'll get better each year because, you know, I think that's 
what we take great pride in doing. So, you know, it, it's all relative, right? I mean, uh, you know, I think the Sunbelt Conference is in an SEC footprint. Um, you know, I think that each school in the league, you know, had very similar approaches and similar opportunity, right? I think the University of Florida, we have opportunity. And, and that's the way I, that's what I see. I see opportunity. So when you, you're, you're again, you're about a little more than halfway, I would imagine, through a spring ball. You got a Thursday night uh, spring game coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, which a uh, little backstory. I came down to Gainesville to say hello to, to, to coach a couple of weeks back. Uh, he was in the process of moving in. So it was just really a quick, hey, how you doing? Catch up for a second. Uh, and I, I believe that was, that was when, I don't know if that idea had been in your head for a little while, but I remember you mentioning it real quickly uh, to your SID. Hey, what do you think about that? So I think it was, I, and when, when it popped up as on the news that, Hey, you're actually going to do this. I was like, yeah, I wonder if I was there that day when that first, when that idea first came to him. So uh, that's a cool idea. You get a little more exposure uh, on a Thanksgiving weekend. I'm interested on what your what your first look at your team is, because this is your first look at your team on the field and where you think maybe you need to add some, because I think there's going to be another wave of portal activity after spring ball. So what does your team look like when you first get a sh chance to, to take it in and where might you be looking to possibly add some players? Yeah, I mean, I, Ralph, I think that's a great question you know we're we're a little over halfway of phase three which is spring practice right we went through foundation we've been through identity and and we're a little bit over halfway through spring and certainly there is an evaluation um part of what we're doing relative to the current roster um you know we we have room right so we have room for players i mean heck we're getting ready to put five walk-ons on scholarship this spring to get to 85 um, you know, we definitely, um, you know, I think that depth is probably the biggest um, thing I would say. And then there are certain position groups in particular that we need to be aggressive. But overall, as a whole, um, we have room and we are going to be strategic about adding players to our team and what I'm calling kind of the spring portal period. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's almost a two periods of free agency in college football. Uh, but, you know, we have an opportunity to make our team better, and we're certainly going to be aggressive in that approach. So uh, we've got room. We're going to evaluate any and every player at any and every position. Um, and we're looking for players that can make our team better, uh, that may be potential starters, uh, and also uh, players that can bring depth to our team and, you know, players that we think contribute and have a role. So, uh, you know, we're not only going to be aggressive when it comes to scholarship players, but we're also in the process of building out our walk-on uh, portion of our roster as well. We've got work to do. Uh, but I, as a whole, I like a lot of what I see. You know, I mean, I think we've got some pieces to work with here, uh, some really, really talented players, uh, but also there are areas where, you know, we can do better. We can get better. Um, and we're, we look forward to that. I think we've got a chance here to make our team better. Did you – I imagine it's probably the case. Did you purposely leave a few extra scholarships? You know, that, that first recruiting class when you come in nowadays because the way, it's, the way it's set up, I mean, you're essentially hiring a new coach a week and a half, two weeks before signing day. So it would make sense – that maybe you leave a little room open there. Uh, how did you intentionally leave some room open there with the idea that, okay, we're going to hit the portal pretty hard. You know, I think we, you know, nowadays, Ralph, the first signing period, right? December, I think our research would tell us that around 80 to 85%, closer to 85% of the players actually sign in December. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we get here, I think we had four days on the road. Uh, we're trying to patch it up as best we can. And then then the kids sign that next week. Um, and then, okay, there's 15% of the players that are available out there in the country. We evaluated um, 
a lot of those players. We signed some of those players. And then here we go. Um, there's no question, you know, that we felt like when we get to May, we'll have a little bit better idea of where we're at with our current team. But absolutely, um, you know, felt like that this would be a period where we would need to make some moves. Um, and now we've got a little bit better of an, of an idea. But uh, certainly part of the strategy is to make sure that we had room to add players. Do you think you're – um, you'll, you'll have a different long-term strategy for the portal than you maybe had short-term here. Um, I, I ask this of a lot of coaches, you know, especially you, you walk in this year, maybe you, as of right now, I think you've got five or six kids uh, transfers coming in. You, you're saying you're going to be aggressive. So you'll probably add a few more, but long-term, do you think, Hey, we're probably going to lean more on those signing day kids uh, here at Florida. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that this is a little bit more of a, you know, transition strategy. You know, there's no doubt, like, eventually, in my mind, the portal is, you know, what the junior college player or the grad transfer used to be, right? You know, you want to build your team with high school players. Um, you want to sign, you know, a, a good quality group each year. And certainly the type of player that we're looking for here at the University of Florida, one that's, you know, excited about the top five public education, one that's excited about the alumni network, one that's excited about competing against the very best in the SEC, uh, and that sees a place where you can truly do it all, right? I mean, this is a place where you can get a, a very well-rounded experience and one that, you know, you can – position yourself independent of football to be a uh, very successful. So, you know, I think for me, the gratification I get from coaching comes from, you know, that three, four, five year process working with a, you know, player. And, um, you know, right now we're in transition. We've got to do what we do need to do to stabilize our roster, but going forward, even as quick as next year, um, I think we'll be very, you know, focused on high school players. Um, and then, okay, hey, you lose a couple players to the draft. Maybe you have an injury. Maybe you have a player transfer, whatever the case may be. You, you need to patch a hole, you know, uh, in, from a depth perspective at a certain position. I think that's more the approach we would take going forward. Okay, just a, just a couple more, Coach. I don't want to keep you too much longer. But um, you um, – Talk about the the model goes back to this is a transition. You're probably going to have to, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit more full classes going forward. I want to talk to you about recruiting in the SEC. You spent time in the SEC. You were on Alabama staff. You've been in a lot of good places. Um, the, what is and and a lot and some different conferences outside of the SEC can you describe maybe the difference between what the head coach's responsibilities are for recruiting in the SEC and if they are different, maybe not the responsibilities, but what pressures um, do you have to be more involved as the head coach in recruiting in the SEC? Is it more intense? Um, that That's the, what we hear, but what do you see as someone who's been in other conferences and now you're back in the SEC? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, for me, I think there's one way to do it, right? I mean, I think for me, I'm trying to, you know, I mean, I think it's all about how you allocate your time. And I, I think we can all agree that acquisition of talent is way up there on the list relative to having success, right? So, and it's not just recruiting. I think it's evaluation too for me uh, because I like to get right in the middle of that um, and then give your staff direction. Uh, but, you know, I think you got to either you, you know, you control it or it controls you, right? I mean, I think we all understand this profession will chew you up and spit you out, right? So there's got to be a certain pace uh, to the job, a certain balance in life. You know, if you want to do a good job at home with your wife and your kids, you want to be a good leader, uh, keep in perspective. Uh, you got to make the most of your time. I think it requires a, a high level of self-discipline. Uh, and you got to know what you're doing with your time the entire year, right? So I think it's one of the reasons why we break up our year the way we do. 
Um, we're very specific about how we uh, use our time and it takes what it takes, um, you know, but, you know, I tell people all the time in this profession, you literally could wake up uh, and work every day, all day, the entire year, and there'd still be more work to do, right? So I think finding the balance, creating well-defined roles within the organization, you know, holding people accountable, making sure we have checks and balances, and realizing that, you know, recruiting is like playing Major League Baseball, right? You're trying to bat 300, right? You can be a one heck of an all-star if you, you know, get on base one out of three times, right? So we're looking for our own base percentage in recruiting, and we got to remind ourselves that we're going to lose, right? You got to put yourself out there. You got to be a great competitor as a recruiter, knowing that um, there's going to be some – you're going to lose sometimes, right? But the key is um, let, let's go let's go shoot our shot, right? Let's go swing at some pitches. Uh, let's evaluate. Uh, let's decide who we want. Let's go be aggressive. And we've got a great product to sell at the University of Florida. I'm extremely impressed with what we have to offer for the experience of the student athlete, right? And um, there's no reason why we can't be competitive with the very best in the entire country. Uh, and it's about the ones that we do get here. Um, we evaluate, we recruit, and once they move in here, it's about development. It's about motivating, building a team creating intangibles uh, within the team, within the entire organization, and uh, trying to do this in a way uh, where we make an impact on who they are as people going forward. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, an incredible challenge, man, but what, a, what an unbelievable platform, what an unbelievable opportunity. Uh, you know, got to get consumed with the daily, right? Focus on the daily. Don't get consumed with the destination. Um, and certainly we're right in the middle of it, man. And it's been a blast so far. All right. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you at least one question about players. And because you have an interest in quarterback battle, of course, I'm going to ask you about quarterbacks. And I know you're not going to anoint a starter right now here with me on the podcast, but I am interested to hear what your early thoughts are on Anthony Richardson, Jack Miller, that's a that's an interesting quarterback competition. You got a, a, a transfer coming in from Ohio State. You got Anthony, who is a holdover and showed he has a really high ceiling. Uh, I think there's a lot of people interested to see how that could roll out. What have you seen from those two players? Yeah, I, I like our quarterback room. I mean, I think, uh, you know, obviously, um, I think we're the, the top half of that room could play winning football. I mean, I, when I lay my head down at night, um, quarterback is not one of the things I'm concerned with. You know, I think we've got other areas that have issues, but you know, I'm very, very pleased with that room as a whole. You know, I think the top half of that room is very capable. Um, you know, certainly Anthony and Jack both uh, have impressed me so far. Uh, and we've got other players in that room that need to step up and continue to develop. Uh, we've got a rookie that's coming in uh, this summer, and then we'll need to add players going forward. So, you know, overall, I think when we talk about the quarterback uh, in our organization, and in particular at the University of Florida, we're talking about a person that should um, bear every standard and expectation that we have, right? I mean, the ultimate example uh, to the other players and people out there. What is Florida football about? How we operate, uh, their example, uh, their approach. If I'm a player on the team, I shouldn't have to look very far. I just look to the quarterback room. Uh, what I see there should reflect everything that we're about. And uh, there's no question. I think we've got some players that are capable there. How did Anthony respond to you bringing – a guy like Jackman. Now, Emery was around, too, at that time. Emery has moved on, Emery Jones. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about Anthony last year for a guy who only played a handful of games. I'm just wondering, how did he respond to Jack Miller coming in? You know, new coach brings in a new quarterback that can sometimes make 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 a kid go, hey, what's up with that? Well, I mean, I, I think that um, we watched every play. Right. I mean, it'd be just to be, I mean, we, we watched every single play, Emory, Anthony, uh, from the prior year. 
right? And certainly we had an opportunity during bowl practice, you know, to observe, you know, kind of what we had on the team. And we felt like we needed a, we needed to make a move to stabilize the situation, right? And I think that had less to do with Anthony and more about the quarterback room as a whole, if that makes sense. So um, certainly Anthony at that point in time was questionable for spring practice. Uh, we didn't know if he was going to be able to participate at all. It was up in the air. Uh, and certainly there were a lot of rumors going around about Emory um, and the, the, you know, kind of the instability there. So we needed to make a move for the team, right? And I think that's the important part here. You know, every player that we add is in, you know, that decision is in the best interest of the team, right? So I think you got to make personnel decisions um, with the greater good in mind, not necessarily the individual room. Uh, we needed to stabilize the quarterback room, and I think we did that when we added Jack, and that that was completely independent of Anthony uh, and his evaluation. We, we're very pleased with Anthony and certainly excited about Jack as well. Billy Napier is the new coach of the Florida Gators. Uh, it is, um, it's a big job, Billy. Uh, did a great job at Louisiana. Now he's trying to bring that magic over to uh, Gainesville. Uh, looking forward to seeing how this all develops. You know, in the SEC, there's no such thing as like a, a rebuilding year where you get a little grace. You know that. So uh, good luck, coach, and uh, appreciate you coming on today and give us a little insight about how it's going down in Gainesville. Ralph, thanks for covering the Florida Gators, man. We'll see you around. Absolutely. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Joining me next on the podcast is Stephen Godfrey. He is the one of the co-hosts of the Split Zone Duo Podcast. He is a great college football writer. Um, you can read his stuff at Secret Base. You can follow him on Twitter. He is uh, a, a, a scholar and a cynic. Uh, and I like to have him on the program every once in a while to say scholarly and cynical things. Cynical. Oh, I got a bit I got to live up to. Okay. Anyway, thanks for joining me, Stephen. I'm going to yes, dive sir. right in here. Um, just talked to Billy Napier. He gave me a little rundown about what's going on down in Gainesville. Uh, there's a lot to like early on about, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the vibe and feel of what he's going to do there. Um I'm not necessarily going to ask you specifically about Napier. I want to ask you this question. Can we still have a world, a college football world, where Miami, Florida State, and Florida are, are all really, really good, like they were in the 90s? This is, okay, it's interesting that you got from Napier to this. I'm curious, like, I don't want to ask the question back to you, but... You can probably um, back at some point. Yeah, it, it is arguable that in a lot of ways, we haven't had this ever, at least in the modern era. So we have Miami. We almost have to put in a corner for a second as sort of an experiment. We have seen a dominant Florida at the same time as a dominant Florida state. They sort of were ships passing in terms of the national title years. And there was kind of a wax and a wane there, but Miami, I don't think anyone would argue up until this past cycle was in a, some sort of sometimes precipitous, sometimes almost a plateau decline from the Miami that we knew from the 80s, 90s, and even the early aughts. So it hasn't really happened in such a long time. The answer is yes. I do think that that success, if we define the success as what, minimum nine wins in the same season for all three programs, we would need to probably be robbing from someone else to have that happen. And so I look at the ACC, specifically because two of those schools are there. 
uh, we have never seen Miami and Florida State at their full potential simultaneously in the ACC. It has never happened since right. since since Miami and Virginia Tech came over from the Big East, however many years ago, they were going to solidify the ACC in football, and it has never happened. And we got Clemson instead. You know, it was like that was we were betting on something that we had, and then Clemson kind of came in out of left field as Florida State fell apart. So um, it is possible, yes, by virtue of the population of the state of Florida, the available talent, there should be no problem fielding three highly competitive teams. The reason why I asked is because as much as I have a fair amount of confidence in Napier, I am certainly extremely interested to see what happens at Miami now with Mario Cristobal. And who knows what exactly is going on with Florida State? I mean, I, you know, I, I, again, I think that there is a possibility that Florida State could be really good again. But as you said, I don't like there was a very brief period when all were flourishing in the late 1990s. And even right. then. I don't know if they were all at the zenith of their powers, right? I, I don't know if all of them were really awesome at the same time, but there was a brief period when they were all good at the same time. But now you throw in everybody's in Florida, uh, like, right? Every Everybody's recruiting heavily in Florida. Sure. Um, I think that there is a, a, there is something to be said for the dynamic of, Florida loses its best coaches to Georgia, right? It's best high school football coaches. So the high school football in Florida is super good. Lots of athletes, but maybe not as refined as it is in some other States. Mm -hmm. So you compact all those things. And I find Napier bringing in the Saban infrastructure system, which is we are going to overwhelm you with manpower at all levels of this operation. And I'm not so much worried that Napier can get it done, I think the outside circumstances might influence how he does more than his Absolutely. ability. Look, we've had a countless amount of coaches come off the Saban tree and think that the key to Nick Saban's success is somehow a personnel chart. It's not. It's not an additional budget to hire analysts. It's not all of the things that we we sort of understand to be window dressing in Tuscaloosa. That's not how it works. You have to understand the mitigating factors. No, 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 no. You have to have it. I I should I should be clear. Yeah, it's a yes. You um, I go back and I think about Georgia sort of just completing this sea change in terms of perception and culture. I would argue that the development of the Atlanta exurbs financially, socially, politically, all of that stuff and the migration patterns in American families over the 1990s starts to pay out in a way in the early 2010s. And and now you have Atlanta as as really a college football nexus, not in terms of fans, but in terms of actual talent. Like you mentioned, the high school ranks, it's just really unrivaled at this point. So did that take away from Florida to a certain degree? Yes. But you know, it's not just Kirby Smart winning a national title. It's also seizing upon the potential in the state of Georgia. This is the same game plan, roughly, that Saban ran in LSU in the early 2000s when, you know, the systems, the logistics were a mess there. But Saban saw a, a, a ridiculous amount of untapped potential because if you recall, you know, Kirby was was the tip of the, of, of the spear for Saban to go in there and attack the city of Atlanta and go in and recruit those kids to Alabama. That was kind of the knock in the in the aughts era of when Saban gets there. They build out of Atlanta a lot, that sort of first half of the Saban dynasty. The same thing was going on for when Saban gets to Louisiana in the early 2000s. You had guys like Work Done playing for Florida State, right? Florida State was a national brand. LSU was a joke. The kid grew up in Baton, in Baton Rouge. Uh, you see these patterns repeat throughout history. To go to Miami for a second, it's, it's almost more dramatic than that. You know, Florida might be, in, in other words, what I guess what I'm trying to say is Florida is probably on the receiving end negatively of some of the newfound success, not only in the Georgia football program in Athens, but I think the state of Georgia and some of the things that have shifted in economics, socioeconomics, and, and just, I, I'm into that stuff. I love talking about that. Mm-hmm. Miami's a completely different animal. It's insane. Um, it is, if I could be a fly on the wall in the in the higher ranks and the power circles of one university this past year, it would be Miami because I have a tough time thinking it was just this alleged public embarrassment that was doled out by Kirk Herbstreet um, to precipitate the firing of Manny Diaz. I think there have been so many factions pulling in so many directions. And then also, I think in Miami's case, not pulling at all, a lot of inertia culturally in terms of 
the support for the program. And again, if you're listening to this and you're just a college football fan, that's that's most of us, right? Miami is not a university that lines up or looks like structurally, financially, culturally, uh, the University of Georgia or Alabama or Florida. I'm not talking so much about racial dynamics. This is a private small school. I think the enrollment is still under 10,000. Super important to understand that Miami is not a massive institution like these other major power football programs, which make what Miami did, what Miami has done even more impressive, but also makes it unique and harder to replicate. Well, and ultimately, everyone's blueprint is going to be found out. Right. So how you replicate and then how do you iterate off of your own work defines multi uh, a multi dynasty sort of run like a Saban. OK. And what I mean by that, that's all just fancy talk for the fact that Miami realized how fertile the area was while the rest of the nation wasn't paying attention. OK, now you can't are. do that anymore. Yeah. There, there is no such thing as hiding a prospect. There's no such thing as a prospect being regional. If a kid is the right size and the right speed and has the right aptitude, it does not matter if they're in North Dakota or if they're in downtown Dallas. It does not matter. And so what Miami kind of failed to do, which you see this all the time at at, at every different level in sports, complacency sets in. And then either in our case, boosters or in pro sports, it's the owners. The, The complacency leads to, again, that word inertia of, well, we're winning right now. Florida State, by the way, great example of this. Great example of this. We're winning. We have a recipe to win. We don't need to spend money on this. We don't need to innovate in this area. We don't need to think progressively in terms of strength and conditioning, analysts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because we're winning right now. And we this is the way it's been done. And this is how we, you know, I think Virginia Tech might be another good example of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Florida State is basically irrelevant when it comes to the national title picture. The moment that Jameis fumbled against Oregon, that was it. And it's been a while. That's been, what, seven, eight years now. Um, if you ask me if they're going to come back right now, I would, if I had to bet yes or no, I would bet no. So it it can happen that fast. In Miami's case, it happened fast and slow, fast and slow. You had, I think, a lot of different power circles involved in trying to fix it. And then I think you had just as many people in in important positions in the University of Miami structure that were invested in really killing that image, killing the white smoke. I've heard that phrase before. Last time I was in Coral Gables, we don't want to smoke anymore. We don't want that. Uh, and, And if you're young and listening to this, you know, everybody's, Every comic book is someone's first. We say that a lot on Split Zone Duo in reference to the fact that, like, I referenced Tattoo Gate on a show recently. Ralph, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jim sure. Trestle in Ohio State, but we got a majority of listeners who are in a certain age gr- bracket that had no idea what I was talking about. They listen to your show, not mine. Okay. You're well, doing to a younger demographic, I think. I, you know, I don't know because I got a lot. I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm just swinging to the dads now. Um, you are the dad on that show. I am the. You know, you're on this show. You're painful. the painful uncle. Um, I'll take that. Um, I say this every time I'm on the show, you were my first AP writer in the press box when I was a student writer. Um, the, I think, look, this can rob any program. What I'm talking about. It's not just limited to Miami. I think Miami specifically, Oh, I meant to say white smoke was used to come out to fire extinguishers in the tunnel. Go, go look it up on Google. If you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, there's a, there's a chance for this to happen to any program in the United States. I think one could argue that the power structure and the unnecessary voices at USC in Heritage Hall sort of calcified over the years and caused a lot of bad decisions. And there was a lot of sort of like intellectual inbreeding in terms of, did you go to USC? Are you a particular moneyed individual of the USC culture? And what happens is you saw that that just kind of almost watered down the USC brand by staying in house so much. And that's why I was really encouraged uh, by the hire of Mike Bond and I think it's paid off, obviously, with, with, with what they've done. So, uh, But no, to, to answer your question, it can happen to anybody. Look, again, age. Some people don't realize Alabama, it was not always a shoe-in to be the first, second, or third best team in any given season. They had the same type of dumb problems that Florida State has right now. Yeah, yeah. Every I think every, having covered this sport long enough, I think every major program has had that moment, except for Ohio State, really, that has, has had that moment of, well, we do it this way because this is the way we've always done it and it works yeah. up until the point when it stops working. There is an argument in Columbus that Trestle, you know, it, it was might have been actually, on the verge of that. Yes. Yes. Tattoo Gate, funny that we just mentioned that, was, was on the verge of, 
and I'm going to, this is broad strokes. And I think if you're familiar with my work, you know, that despite where I'm from and all that kind of stuff that I am, I am the antithesis of an sec Homer. There was a need, a painful need to modernize and adopt some of those sec philosophies in the big 10. And that really doesn't happen until urban comes in there yes. for better or worse. And so I think the trestle changeover was maybe when they're at their weakest and they're also, look, they're going to national title games and they're just getting drilled. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's not comparable football. Um, which is a whole other conversation you could have about maybe why Brian Kelly is in Baton Rouge right now, but I digress. And we will get to that conversation at some point or another. Um, so to just to, to, to show the, the fault of my question and then we'll move on to another topic is Florida is so big and so diverse. Yes. I think all of the problems at the, each school are different and are yes. solved in different ways. So I think the idea of, while, while it makes sense on some level for me to say, can they all be good at the same time? Because we think of it as, well, they're all recruiting from Florida. The, the reality is they're, they're each facing different level of problems. And yes. because the place is so big and, and, it's, and the recruiting dynamics are so different from place to place, they can be solved in different ways. I, want- I will say this real fast. Yeah. Uh, you know, Richard Johnson, my co-host, a Florida alum, he just he went down there and talked to Napier. We just did an episode on Florida. Mm-hmm. I think of the three schools, absolutely in the best position, not because of their conference affiliation. I am just loving the silent, pragmatic approach that Napier is taking to 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 this program. I, I think we saw the sort of. <laughs> just the world's worst way to do it. I, unfortunately, I think it was when Willie Taggart went into Tallahassee and said, this is my dream job. We're going to win national titles. And it was a gloss over foundational cracks. Mm-hmm. Napier. Well, first off, I don't think UF has foundational cracks, but Napier has come in and said, Hey, we are behind. This is going to take time. We've got to evaluate every aspect of this. Some things have not been done well here. I'll get back to you. If you care, you'll follow us along the journey. That's, that's roughly what it translates to, which I think is not sexy, but definitely the right way to do it. Okay. I want to transition to the Sun Belt because you are a G5 god. Um, the Sun Belt won a tug of war uh, with Co- Conference USA and has pulled its um, two, uh, three new members out of there early. Mm-hmm. Uh, ODU, Marshalls, uh, Southern Miss will now be comp- will now be Sun Belt schools. Yes. Uh, and for someone who lived in Mississippi for a long time, that will take adjustment for me as far as the Southern Miss part of that is concerned. Sure. Um, my bigger qu- question with this is I have heard a lot of like the Sun Belt is feeling itself these days. Yes. Out, very proud of itself as well. It should be a lot of a lot of a uh, lot of gains have been made there. It definitely is positioning itself as to be a much stronger conference going forward. However, I, Stephen Godfrey, I'm very skeptical. I'm a little skeptical. I'm a little skeptical of so much of the love because they're still not making any money in that conference. In the Sun Belt. In the Sun Belt. They're still not making any money. And ultimately, the AAC, we can we can laugh at them for all the Conference USA schools that they got and say, ha ha, all you did was get North Texas. But mm. they have an infrastructure there to be bringing in and creating some revenue for their schools to invest. And- right. The Sun Belt still doesn't have much of that. So I understand the Sun Belt is getting better and good for the Sun Belt, but I still think that the idea that the Sun Belt now has a chance to be the best G5 conference, and I hear that conversation, I, I think that's out over its skis. I just don't see it. I think what you're hearing is that they they might have a season in which you could go top six against top six and compare those. When we talk about best or we talk about, you know, ideal situation, the bottom line is that it's about money. That's it. That's exactly so, Yeah. So, so to that end, the, the spine of the American is still the old Big East, right? The, the football Big East, not the current one. I am not going to try and explain this to you if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. um, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's apples to oranges when you're comparing the financial situation, which is why I would love to see, as someone who is in the area, UAB playing a schedule full of Sunbelt teams because I, because I think in, in sense of culture and those players and those cities and those fan bases, yeah, UAB would probably want to be playing Troy, USA, USM, and all of those you know, Sunbelt schools around there. It makes sense. It, it, it feels right. However, yes, there is a financial gulf. I have a bone to pick 
with G5 conferences defaulting to ESPN deals because one of the reasons why, Ralph, you made a very good point, the Sunbelt is not making a tremendous amount of money to pass revenue on to schools, is that what we've seen just recently is that ESPN is creating a content bottleneck with the Plus platform, right? It used to be that the Sunbelt, the Conference USA, would have to find a a rights holder home. In other words, we, we're going to be on ESPNU on Tuesday nights or whatever, right? Like Maction. Now everything just gets funneled into this streaming service. If you read the recent Disney earnings report, it's fascinating. Let me tell you, you will see specifically, they mentioned the fact that plus is not a revenue generator. It is a loss. It, it is, a, is a, I don't know if it's a loss leader, but it is a, it is operating at a loss. I don't like this. I don't like this for a number of reasons because they're lumping everything from the American on down uh, all the way to like the South to, to, to FCS conferences are just getting jammed into this platform. And I think it devalues them. I also think it, it limits the amount of money they could make. I am curious why one of these conferences has not struck out, even if it's just to go over to the CBS sports with, uh, with the mountain West or, or some of the military academies to try and get some actual broadcast money, because you're right. There is a quality to these football teams right now. Some of the some of that quality is self-sustaining per school. App, Georgia Southern, those schools are going to make money because those schools have fan bases who want to spend money. Yeah. Louisiana Lafayette, same situation, right? Or Louisiana, whatever I'm supposed to call them. Some of those schools do not. Right. So you can go to Arkansas State, and I would argue they have facilities on par with some P5s. Mm-hmm. But you can go to Louisiana Monroe, and it looks like a high school. In fact, it looks worse than most Texas high schools. And so that's the problem. I think, I think you've touched on something very interesting here. Yes, this is true. However, I would also say this, other than the TV thing, they're doing the best they can in the situation they're in because there was really one decision that was made and in the last cycle of realignment. If you go back to the LHN debacle and Nebraska going to the Big Ten, that, that was sort of the Archduke Ferdinand of that era. Mm-hmm. When that trickled down, Conference USA made a bet on markets. Right. The Sun Belt made a bet on football at the time because cable was God. Betting on markets made sense. Betting on football felt a little idyllic. Well, turns out that won. Because right. when you look now, what I hear from Conference USA coaches and administrators are this is a mess. We have no relationship with these people. There's no tradition here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why it's basically, you know, it's it's kind of dying. I wouldn't say dying on the vine, it's just kind of rotting. Yeah. It's it's a it's a league that is it has almost been just sort of grandfathered in because that they they are mentioned in the uh, I think there there's a mention of ten FBS conferences within uh, NCAA um, guidelines and rules right. and there's also they are godfathered in through the college football playoff but when that becomes a different thing then that contract ends who knows what conference USA status will be well uh, they're going to run out of money first. They very well might. They very unless well. unless unless the exit fees that are being negotiated for these three schools that we talked about at the beginning of this might be enough to float them along, and yeah. to see which FCS programs are are eager enough just to get FBS status and pay their way in. Stephen, it goes back to you can sue me for you know thirty million dollars, but if I don't have thirty million dollars, then good luck with it. Then yes, exactly, you can, you can sue me for it. So when yes. that, I bring that when you talk about exit fees, like how much can you charge USM of an? Well, exit? you know, it's, uh, you, it's so, only, so, they have no like Southern Miss doesn't have any money. So you, you and I both me. have experience in that state. Yeah. USM yeah. was always a rose in concrete in terms of the football that they're known for nationally, because as you and I know. That would, they were never a moneyed program. They were always little brother in the most little brother state in the union. And they everything they did, they did in spite of the circumstances, which is what, what's so remarkable about that program. Asking them to write you a check feels like a fool's errand, but it seems like that's what Conference USA is going to do. I find it interesting from USM's vantage point specifically because it's a little bit different than the other, the other two schools. USM's further, way deep in, in the South. What USM is betting on is something that I find really interesting. They think that they are going to, it's going to be a better situation for them to get to the Sun Belt as fast as possible because of ticket revenue, better scheduling, and a proximity and an ability to immediately go about. And if you're in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which if you don't know, is about an hour north of New Orleans, kind of towards the Mississippi coast, you're going to get more people interested in driving to Mobile, Alabama to play USA 
a little bit further to the east to play Troy and so on and so forth. And that's going to foster what they see as a positive for those two schools in Alabama that I mentioned, as well as the rest of the conference. They are banking on that, literally uh, boosting their revenue in all sports, which I think, honestly, given the choices, that's probably the best move you can make. Yeah, I, I hope it works. And, you know, again, I will always have a soft spot for that school. So I hope it works out. It, it has pained me to see them fall on hard times. And, you know, again, not to pile on Conference USA, but if you're going to make them just, play UTEP, it's just not going to work. It's bad decision making at that school specifically. And when your margin for error is very tight in any sport, you know, be it because of a salary cap issue or funding or whatever, your mistakes get magnified. And that's what happened at USM for the better course of, you know, 15 years. Also, don't hire our Bryles. They, they started this trend long before Grambling did. Stop trying to hire our Bryles. That's another show. Last one for you before we get you on out of here is I, I wanted to ask you what is wrong with West Virginia. And it'd be Ooh. very easy to say, well, to, to look at the transfers and things along those lines. But I want to pull the lens back a little, a uh, little wider here and say when Neil Brown was hired, I think there were a lot of people. I raised my own hand here who thought, that might be an upgrade coach-wise for West Virginia. Going okay. from Holgerson to Neil Brown, somebody a little more, uh, let's say, uh, I don't want to say stable because that, that's a knock on Dana that he doesn't deserve, but somebody with a little more, uh, a little more grounded, right? A little mm -hmm. more maybe, maybe better suited to the West Virginia culture. And it's just, it's just failed to launch here. And now there's a whole bunch of players going into the portal, and you kind of wonder if you're just set up for another six and six season at West Virginia. And is it the, is the problem, the big 12 is the problem, Neil Brown. And like what happened to the, my West Virginia football that I used to love. And is there a ceiling here? So I, I, I'm, I'm asking you, so I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you there, but like, like wither West Virginia, like what, what's going on there? I, I, I have a, I wouldn't say this about a lot of coaches. I am a professional cynic. I'm very aggressive in my viewpoint of million dollar FBS power five coaches. I would be flabbergasted beyond measure as a very jaded journalist that there was a culture problem at a Neil Brown program. I've embedded it in Neil Brown program. I've, I, I've known that guy for a long time. I'm like, I'm not friends with anybody in this industry, but I'm saying is I have, I actually have respect for him as a head coach. And I don't say that it's like maybe two hands worth of coaches. I can say that about I think what's going on here is a West Virginia problem combined with a brave new world and NIL. It, it's funny because all of this kind of kicked off, Look, they brought in Graham Harrell. They, they, I, I think this was going to be a before, before last week, this is going to be a pivot season for West Virginia. Cause I think offensively they were going to be, probably make the step they needed to, mm -hmm. to compete that style in that league, which is so Texas centric for obvious reasons. It's just not, it's never really been a fit for West Virginia. They were the last one on a lifeboat out again in that, the, the, the Nebraska big 10 LHN. I, I don't know. We, we've got to come up with for a name for these cycles. You know, West Virginia was the last one out of the big East. They jumped on the big 12. I've, I've said this a thousand times. They are a thousand miles away from their nearest, the nearest school, Kansas. They are a thousand miles away. They look like a big 12 town. They're just really far away. Yes, <laughs> but the problem is this big 12 culture. It's just but being very far away. But you can't do that. Uh, yeah, I, I just I look. It, it blows my mind. This is going to get sat at the feet of Brown, because uh, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. And I like both of both men. I've, I've interviewed both and spent time with both. I don't know if you can make a more jarring personality transition for a college yeah. athlete than going from Dana Holgerson to Neil Brown. It's just very different. Um, I think they were finally cycling over into sort of Brown having his guys right as NIL and, and this new transfer culture emerges. I don't think it's something that would be that you could really lay at Brown's feet because we're seeing it across the league. We're seeing it everywhere. I think, you know, d depending on, um, and I just, I blanked on, uh, was it Mesador, the um, yeah, defensive lineman, like, depending on where he ends up, I think is going to be very telling if we're looking at, because it's funny, this conversation has started and I'm a firm believer that we don't have enough data here yet to start making big conclusions on NIL and on, on the portal. Okay. I feel like we need more Completely seasons. Completely we need, great. we just need to learn more about this before we start making big declarative statements. Um, but one thing we have noticed is that, you know, G5 programs are often sort of, you know, graduating, if you will, in finger quotes, the good players up and they maybe they, if they get a shot at a bigger P5 school, they'll transfer. 
that didn't make waves as much as, as a program like West Virginia losing one of its best players to potentially go seek out, you know, a place at a USC, for instance, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, you know, the, the Gibbs situation at Georgia tech is, is very telling now tech's in a much worse situation and he's going to Alabama, which kind of seems like a no brainer, but now the player has agency to do that again, to go back to Brown. I think he's between a rock and a hard place. It's not an easy job. I think we've romanticized West Virginia because of the slate and white run. But when you look at it's real simple. I, this is how I explain a lot of the post realignment schools. You know, Colorado kind of lost it completely when they stopped being a Big 12 school and they started being a Pac-12 school. Because if you go back and look at the good Colorado teams from our faint memory, they built from Texas North, right? Slayton and White came from Florida. Hmm. When, the, when West Virginia was in the Big East, it was hard enough to go down there and pluck players. But this idea that West Virginia was just going to pick up and drop into DFW and Houston and instantly recruit and maintain those players, look, Dana Holgerson left for a G5 program who is now going to join the Big 12, but he didn't know that at the time. He went for a, about, a, about an equal amount of money, and he, his logic, he said this on and off the record to me and 20 other reporters, why, like, why can't I just go home to Houston and do the same? It, it's on par with West Virginia. You know, It's like if you want to run a seafood restaurant, why are you in Omaha? <laughs> and that's kind, of, that's kind of unfortunately been the situation for West Virginia because they haven't had a likely – home they, they should probably be in the acc right do you think the entry of cincinnati and ucf giving them a more regional partner okay helps west virginia because now hey we're gonna play in your state ohio where we are adjacent hey we're gonna come to florida or does it hurt west virginia because hey the, the what, what west the, i guess you could say the one thing west virginia has had is hey we're the big 12 school if you're an ohio kid we're the big 12 school if you're a florida kid and you like that idea of playing in the big 12 we can provide you that now those kids can just stay home it's possible well, i just think i i think it's more off field it would help them mm-hmm. i i think they've I think they've struggled because they've got to find a pipeline and an, and an identity. Um, you know, even like Kentucky can go in and recruit Ohio better than I think West Virginia can right now. And it is because they're basically the satellite Texas team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just, I have a really tough time. This idea that culture is just culture is an overused buzzword. And it got plugged in to sort of say, there's a, is there something wrong with Neil Brown? No, that guy does more for player culture than, 90% of the coaches I know, I, I'm shocked by this. And I think, honestly, I know that West Virginia hasn't sort of lit the world on fire. They started with almost nothing. I know people remember that last good year with Dana, but they turned over that roster. Right. Stripped down. There was a serious consideration of Louisville hiring Neil Brown before they went with Satterfield. And I think if you honestly got all parties involved, the, at, at UofL, they would go back and say, yeah, we, we, we should have hired someone who understood Kentucky. We should have hired someone who understood the city of Louisville. I mean, Neil Brown grew up a coach's kid in the, in the state of Kentucky. They, they screwed that up. And I think also Louisville would be an easier job to manage if, if you are Neil, Neil Brown. Um, yeah, there's a know, podcast he on got, Louisville that could be done too, by the way. What's that? <laughs> there's a podcast on Louisville that we could conceivably do at another time. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, had, I had an ACC coach tell me, he goes, if it wasn't for the situation at Georgia Tech feeling so inevitable Satterfield would be the number one name in the, in that league that that they just feel like, Hey, okay. The time's over, you know? Yeah. Maybe Malik Cunningham saves him this year. Yeah. The Neil Brown, just to to wrap up on Neil Brown, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I just, like, I don't know him as well as you do, but I've gotten to know him a little bit and like, it doesn't make sense to me that he, again, like whatever you want to call a culture problem. Yeah. Doesn't sort of fit there. Um, So Neil Brown, Neil Brown. And I'll, I'll say this. And I'm not trying to stump for the guy, but I'm just going to, I'm going to, maybe West Virginia fans are going to be excited to hear this or not. I don't know. I've never met someone less interested in the frivolities of what we value in the media. (laughs) The guy is as steady as they come. He's my age. He's 40. He's I think 41. He's not an old coach. He's an old soul. The the dude feels like a high school principal when you shake his hand, but I, I mean that as a compliment. This this guy is not interested in some of the buzzier aspects. And the way that translates to football is that Troy was not rebuilt quickly. Troy was broke. Larry Blakeney was a legend. Just to tie it all back, Ralph, we talked earlier in the segment about how 
you have programs that get good and just assume it'll be that way forever and they fall apart, go look up the history of Troy football. Mm. It's the exact same thing that happened. Brown had to come in, having been an assistant there, and slowly build back things. I mean, literally, his he told me a story about his his dad, his family came in to help like hang drywall, and they were making like a makeshift football facility. They didn't even really have one. Like that's the kind of stuff you have to do uh, at those jobs. And so I think it translates to West Virginia over time. He was always going to be a guy to me that it was like, all right, bad roster. He may literally go one win up year by year. I know that hasn't happened exactly, but that's that's how I would see a Neil Brown culture. I just don't know if West Virginia is ever going to be a sustainable job in this Big 12. Stephen Godfrey, you can hear him on Split Zone Duo podcast with Richard Johnson and Alex Kirshner. You can read him at Secret Base. You can see him around the Nashville area trying to be a hip dad. Um, <laughs> Failing miserably. Dude, man, I really appreciate you taking the time, giving some great insight, and hopefully we will uh, maybe see each other in person at some point or another or do this again sometime soon. Absolutely, sir. Good talking to you. Thanks, man. And now the three and out. First down. While talking to Florida coach Billy Napier about the post-spring portal shopping period and his quarterbacks, I couldn't help but sort of put two and two together there and wonder if one of the players we could see on the market is the Gators' promising quarterback, Anthony Richardson. It feels like things have been touch and go with Richardson for months at Florida. He is a talented player, and I could very well see him having the type of spring that puts him on track to be the Gators' clear-cut number one entering preseason practice. That is, even if the coach declines to actually say that. But you can't help but wonder what happens if spring ball provides no clarity internally or externally on the Gators quarterback competition. Is Richardson still really locked in with the Gators? Check back in in two or three weeks. Second down, Texas A&M added one more, yet another, five-star to its loaded recruiting class last week when Labius Overton committed to the Aggies. Overton was a class of 2023 recruit who reclassified to 2022. He is A&M's eighth five-star player in a class that already broke records as far as the recruiting services are are, are concerned, 24-7's highest ranking ever. And the fourth five-star defensive lineman in the class. A&M is going to enter next season pretty highly ranked and in a great spot to build on what has been a pretty steady build under Jimbo Fisher. But it is a bit of an odd spot if you think about what is fair to expect for the 2022 team. The mega recruiting class certainly raises expectations on year five under Jimbo Fisher. But this is also a team that is coming off an eight and four season and has major question marks at quarterback and receiver to pretty big three, two, one. But this is also a team that is coming off an eight and four season and has major question marks at quarterback and receiver to pretty big areas. If you're going to win a national title these days, despite what Georgia did last year, sure. The Aggie should expect immediate help from a recruiting class with so much star power. And the schedule lays out pretty good for a successful 2022, but it would seem like 2023 is more likely to be the season when A&M is truly loaded to make a run at a national championship. Third down, doing some research for a story last week and found out yet another factoid that makes me worry about the long-term health of Pac-12 football. In the recruiting class of 2023, so the cycle we are in right now, according to 24-7 sports rankings, California has 25 top 400 players, 31 players in the top 500. The state of Louisiana has 17 players ranked in the top 500. All of those players are in the top 400. California has eight times the population of Louisiana and is basically the recruiting... Three, two, one... California has eight times the population of Louisiana and is basically the main recruiting territory for an entire conference. Those numbers, those raw numbers of blue chip players 
or let's say high-level players coming out of California as compared to Louisiana are way too close for the Pac-12 to be an elite football conference. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. If you have any questions that you'd like me or my guests to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you on all topics, college football, serious or silly. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.